Live from the internet, it's the Local Host Podcast with Mark Drew and Rob Dudley. Hello from the internet. In this episode, we continue our exploration of identity, security, and authorization on the web. Let's get on with the show. Good morning, Rob. And we're back onto the subject of authorization, authentication, and identity. Picking up uh, where we left off last time. Right. I, I don't think we went deep enough on certain subjects that we should expand here. And we did say we were going to expand them, right? Well, we said that we were going to continue. There was a, a bunch of stuff that we wanted to continue talking about. So uh, how about we launch straight into it? All right. Let's do it. So first thing that we kind of skipped over was OAuth and delegating your, your login, right? Yes. OAuth has been around for a little while um, it's in in its current form. It came out of Twitter, I'm going to say. Uh, That's the first time I encountered uh, it. That is a very good question. I don't know the answer to it. Um, I think it was Twitter. I think it was part of their OpenID um, implementation back in, I want to say, mid-2000. Yeah. So 2005, 2006, maybe. In the mid, in the middle noughties, at the middle of the noughties, yeah. Um, I mean, I, I know I'm, I, I we're probably wrong uh, without us looking it up on Wikipedia or something, but that was the first time I encountered it, uh, and it was fairly simple. I did, I built a whole bunch of stuff in which you could get your auth token and your auth secret and use them basically as username and password. Yeah, well, the initial the initial version. Let's just you know quickly run through what it does for those who've been living under a rock and haven't run into it. It allows you as the application developer to extend a mechanism by which third-party applications can authenticate users against your platform without requiring that you ever do divulge their username or password. It's all based on cryptographic tokens and token exchange. So there's a whole, you know, OAuth 1 was nice and simple. There were like three steps, I think, to the authentication. Yeah. So they would send you an initial request, and then you would send them back a signing key, and blah, 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 blah. The key thing here is that I suppose OAuth allowed for a bunch of different really cool features, mm. not least of which being you can revoke any OAuth authorization. Mm. So it allows the user total control over access to their platform, to their account on your platform, right. and in theory, it means that you could also rotate off without having to do things like password resets and what have you. Yeah. So I mean, in practical terms, that was basically saying, "Oh, I authorized Farmville on my Facebook, uh, but now they're stealing all my data, so I'm going to unauthorize it so they can never have access to my data again." Yeah, in theory. Essentially, yeah. I mean, in theory, right? I mean, being... Facebook is a special case that that. Let's not touch upon that. Yeah, uh, there are a bunch of fairly cool things in the OAuth spec, the OAuth 1 spec that I really liked, not least of which they had message signing, which meant that effectively you could use your key to verify that the message actually came from you. OAuth 1 was designed to work over a completely clear text protocol. It didn't have to be encrypted on the transport. Mm -hmm. And OAuth 2 came along and kind of spoiled the party by adding a whole bunch of additional cool stuff, but it removed a bunch of stuff, so that message mm -hmm. signing went away. To be fair, the message signing was a bit of a pain in the <clears throat> derriere. Yeah, it was the main sticking point. Do you, I think we talked about this before, where you had to get your parameters for your request in the right order to generate the signature yeah. correctly. Yeah, that's yeah. right. And, 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 you know, which programming language actually 
does parameters like in, in dictionaries or hashes or, or, or structs, however you call it, it rearranges them. It puts them into alphabetical order or things like that because it doesn't really matter, right? Well, this is it. It's fairly common in most programming languages, certainly the ones that I've used, that all of the dictionaries are like, oh, no, these are these are unordered Yeah. by definition. <laughs> yeah. Okay. So become a real pain. That that's the one thing that always threw me because you'd be sending a, and also as well as part of this this development of that, you'd be developing a, a thing and sending it, and it says nope, your 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 signing key is completely different from what the server expects. Not working. And you're like, well, what wh what is it? I, you're not telling me any information for me to debug this. <laughs> so I've I've run against this and and I have bruises on my forehead from banging my head against the wall. So, yeah, OAuth 2 was actually designed to introduce a whole bunch of new authorization flows. Uh, OAuth was originally just this very straightforward user platform, and that was about it. Uh, and OAuth 2 decided that it was going to solve the issues faced by things like offline devices, desktop applications rather than websites, mm -hmm. uh, mobile devices, mobile phones and apps, um, you know, smart Don't devices, know. IoT, and all of this. Right. So, Stuff that's not always on online, for example. Yeah, or doesn't have a web-based interface. It doesn't have the traditional keyboard and mouse, that kind of thing. Mm -hmm. So there's a whole bunch of extensions uh, that were added. And, and to be honest, OAuth 2 is almost a completely different thing to OAuth 1. Mm -hmm. It's not backwards compatible in any way, shape, or form. It has vague similarities in that you start with the idea of a client secret, a shared secret to set up the session, but then all the rest of it is pretty much horribly different. Right. If you're using OAuth 2, currently, I think, required by Facebook, Google, Microsoft, including for Azure AD and all the rest of it. So pretty much anything with Azure, you'll be using OAuth 2. And and Twitter, right? Has Twitter jumped to OAuth 2, or are they still using OAuth 1? They are OAuth 2. I remember like a whole bunch of apps that I worked that just said, nope, don't work anymore. Right, right. So I had to rewrite them, and I didn't. But yeah, yeah. I mean, the I suppose the main thing that I would always say is, OAuth is just about straightforward enough that if you want to read through the protocol documentation and write your own implementation, you can. Mm -hmm. It's not total rocket science, however, especially given the breadth of OAuth 2's authorization uh, scopes and different types of, of operation, you're probably going to be better off not writing this and just using a library. Right. And, and there's plenty out there. I've seen Java libraries for this. And lots of ways that you can implement it either both as a client and as a server, right? Yeah, well, this is most of the time, uh, I suppose, most of the time that I've worked with OAuth, it's been writing a client integration. Mm -hmm. So I've wanted to either allow a user to link their you know, Facebook account to my application so that I can post it on their wall and scrape yeah. massive amounts of data. But but some of the stuff about Auth, or, OAuth actually says what you have access to. And part of the protocol says what roles and, and context you can actually access. And as a user, you get to see that, right? Well, so, this is one of the bits that I've always really liked about OAuth is the concept of scoping, mm -hmm. and that you can actually, as a as server implementer, you can write out these scopes, which can pretty much describe your entire app's underlying operation set. Mm -hmm. And you can do it in a really granular way. So you can say, actually, you only want read-only access to like the bare minimum information about this user, which would right. be perfect if you were writing a sign-in-with-style application. You literally just need yeah. their email address. Or you maybe don't even need that. You just need a user ID or something. Right. 
because this is a flow. You you pop up a window that actually goes to. I'm going to look at Twitter, for example, or Facebook, and it pops up a, a, a window that is Facebook's window that asks you which scopes do you want to give. Is this this application is asking for, and you sign in, and you're actually signing in with Facebook, and that's where your username and password is going to. And OAuth was actually the first system to do this kind of scoped permission model which weirdly we're now incredibly used to because it's very similar to the permission model that you get on mobile. Okay. On iOS or you know modern Android, it's like this app wants these permissions. It wants access to these features. Uh, and OAuth have been doing that for ages. But yeah, it's, it's useful in that it allows you a really convenient way to uh, lock down specific bits of your application, allow a user confidence that they're only granting access to the elements of their data or their application that they want to, and potentially being able to opt out of some of that as well. A lot of the, uh, I think it was Facebook, ironically, it was Facebook, had a really strong set of guidelines on using OAuth and then using, it's kind of like a, a privilege escalation request. Okay. So if you wanted to write to the wall, uh-huh. you would ask separate to the actual initial kind of onboarding. Oh, I see. So like you'd have to like, a, oh, this application really wants to to start spamming you, right? As I say, very ironic given the company that was implementing that. Sure, but that's quite a good methodology in a way because what you could remember, like sometimes onboarding of people is is fairly hard. So like you can do it like, hey, we just want to have your basic details just so we can authenticate you with our system and later on once you've paid for the upgrade or whatever your application does you can say okay now we can also let's say you're doing a marketing platform right well okay well you want us to actually post to your facebook wall and your other social networks that makes sense yeah well that's it it reduces friction uh for the user it should be completely seamless for the dev, there are a couple of other things that we need to worry about, especially with OAuth 2. We have this concept that uh, in OAuth 1, it was nice and easy. You got an authorization token from the user, and you were done. You just had to keep that safe, and you could use it whenever you needed to authenticate that user against the third-party platform. Right. OAuth 2 introduced the concept of um, kind of life cycle for token management. So the tokens actually have a lifetime after which they expire, and you get um, a token that you then have to use to kind of reinitialize the previous token, and it's a bit more work. That said, use a library and it does it all for you. Meteor had a great library, which I just loved, because the Meteor platform allowed you to say, hey, how do you want to log people in? And you'd go like, well, I'm going to use username and password, and it'll bring you all the UI for username and password, right? Then you can go like, oh, I also want to log in via Twitter. And you'll go like, yeah, great. You go go to this page, create an app, give me these two tokens, and we'll save them, and then that's it. You had like the full interface. You didn't have to implement any code or very little code for it to actually work. And that's the easiest implementation that I've ever seen because it literally you just start up your app, and it goes like, yeah, go and give me the tokens. So, I mean, OAuth is one of the more advanced authentication systems. There are others. Uh, there is, I think, OpenID is one uh, that we're not going to explore in too much detail. Yeah mostly because I haven't written any notes on it. But OpenID followed similar to OAuth 1, if I recall correctly. Yeah, it was fairly similar to that. I don't know, I haven't inspected it since then, but it was one of the competitors that... I say competitors because it's, it's trivial of all, all the formats that you could be implementing it. But it didn't, despite its name, it, it got fairly far, but then other things I think overtook it, OAuth 2 being one of them. Yeah, it had that... 
there was that weird moment when OpenID was more or less everywhere from a developer perspective. We were like, oh, this is going to be amazing. This is going to solve all of our problems. And then OAuth overtook it by virtue of actually just being used by other people. Yeah. So it's like, oh, I'm writing OAuth integrations to talk to Twitter or all of these social networks and you know, everything else. So I was like, and OpenID kind of fell away. I'm guessing it's still in use somewhere. Uh, I haven't seen it in a very long time, but hey. The joys, as I said, of OAuth, the main thing from a user perspective is that it allows you to not have to give your password to a third party to grant them access to your account on a different system, right? Because, as we know, passwords should be kept super secure. Mm. And they don't, as we know, by many different databases being sold on the interwebs. Have you started getting those emails going with one of my incredibly old passwords and saying, hey, I've got your password, I've accessed all your systems, and you're like, no, you haven't. No. Because that's a very old password. You've just bought a database filled with I do I do quite like a couple of them though because especially when I get the one that's like um where I've used a proper random generated password it was like the early days of using a password manager yeah and it's like we know your password is and there's a 24 character string of gibberish yeah yeah I mean firstly I've changed that but secondly do you really think that's in use anywhere else I can't type that Nobody can type that. But yeah, so, um, you know, password storage and security we talked about last time. From a user perspective and from a developer perspective, I think increasingly we've got to a state where users are aware that simply entering a username and a password into an application is maybe not quite as secure as it should be. I mean, even even going outside the fact of, of web, that with Heartbleed, they sell uh, exploit. And things like that. It's like the underlying protocol has been cracked several times. So, yeah. So you want to have this kind of multi-factor thing. So there's less chance of, you know, the, the process has to be slightly longer. So there's less chance of at any point all of your credentials being obtained, right? Yeah, well, I mean, if you think about all of the common attacks uh, against a username and password-based system, having a second factor that's required to go along with that username and password mitigates most of them, provided that second factor is delivered and generated in a, a secure way. Right. So shoulder surfing, if you've got a second factor, not a problem. Um, you know, password database intercepts, password reuse by and large, it, it goes a long way towards mitigating the fact that users like to reuse their passwords. Mm. So as developers we should be looking to implement second factor on almost all of our authentication, right? What do you mean by second factor? Well, okay. So the factors of authentication are generally broken down into three types. Uh, and what we have is uh, something you know, something you have, and something you are. So an example of something you know would be a password or a PIN. Right. Something you have, uh, for example, would be uh, a USB token or a physical key. Uh-huh. And something you are is biometrics, fingerprint, DNA, retinal scan, uh, facial geometry and face ID, that kind of thing. So you'd have to have all three of those. No, it's second factor. So you have to have one and then another one. <laughs> oh, okay. <laughs> it's in the name, Mark. God. Well, actually, to be honest, most people would refer to this as multi-factor authentication at this point. Okay. To right. say, actually, yeah. yeah, if you want to have three, 
or have multiples in each category, it makes the system, in theory, more secure up to a point of diminishing returns. So there are a bunch of common, and I'll refer to them as second factors for the sake of this, uh, there are a bunch of common approaches that we can implement as developers. Uh, let's start with the worst possible one in the world, and this is a token or a code that is sent to the user via a standard communication method, for Just example, SMS. email or okay. SMS. Right, because SMS is pretty clear, right? SMS is well and truly broken. Yeah. And if you don't believe me, feel free to go and Google it. We will see if we remember to put some stuff in the show notes. But there have been example after example after example of SMS being intercepted, being spoofed. It is not secure in the slightest. Right. And, and also, like, just as a background, SMS is actually the debug channel of the telephone networks. So it was never designed to be secure. It's meant to be designed for the, for the, no. for the uh, engineers to go and get in and, and see what was happening. Yeah, it's crazy. And it's kind of frustrating that so many systems still rely on it, even systems that are fundamentally secure. So things like Signal, which is a messaging app, mm -hmm. uh, uses SMS authorization to verify your phone number. I suppose that's the only way you can really do it, but still, come on, at least make a phone call. At least that's hard. Right. So SMS-based codes are bad. Uh, Email-based codes are actually equally bad because one of the common attacks against an account is uh, it will often focus on trying to gain access to a user's email address. Right. Because if you own the email address, you own all the things, right? Because password resets go there and all of the, you just logged in, was this you? So you can really, if, you, if you're in the user's email, you can really go hog wild. Uh, so using that as your second factor delivery channel is inherently not a great plan. And this is why Google Mail have, have tried to improve it again and again. I notice myself daily having to log into Gmail a lot more. Like, you know, authenticate myself basically a lot more than previous. Yeah, they've ramped up their detection and uh, they tend to basically, if in doubt, log you out, which is actually a fairly good mantra for more or less any developer of a secure application. Yeah. I mean, we'll, we'll talk a little bit uh, in a minute perhaps about the implications of writing, uh, you know, a, a truly secure system. Uh, mm. But for now, looking at second factors that work... We've got a couple of different systems, all of which are based around the concept of a one-time password. Mm -hmm. We've got the HMAC one-time password and the time-based one-time password. Now, one of these, and I can't remember exactly which one, is uh, based on Google Authenticator. Sorry, Google Authenticator is based on it. Right. And these are open authorization standards, and effectively, this uses a very straightforward private key that you scan in the form of a QR code or you enter a secret. And from that, it can derive a code that changes every 30 seconds and is normally six digits long. Mm -hmm. Now, what's interesting is that the OTP or the protocol that defines this actually doesn't require it to be six digits long and it doesn't require it to be 30 seconds. You can have these things spinning around every 10 seconds and they can be 10 digits long if you want. Right. So just increase the security or, or decrease it. But of course, like then there's the fact that users, I don't think, can in 10 seconds put in a 10-digit code. Um, yeah, you probably could. I mean, it's a second a character. Yeah, sure. But, you know, it's <laughs> no. a tiny writing. It's, uh, you know, I all think that kind of 30 things. seconds and six digits is a sensible default. Uh, the reason that the 30 seconds is important is that it allows us to protect against, uh, inherently protect against what's called a replay attack. Mm. So if somebody were to look over your shoulder, 
and see your phone with these codes, and they make a note and they say, oh, Mark's Facebook code was 234178. Don't tell everyone. Well, it doesn't matter, because in 28 seconds' time, it will no longer be valid. And I think our podcast will be out in a lot longer than 28 seconds. Yeah. So the odds of collision between uh, the secret and the time element are minimal. Right. Uh, So the odds of that code actually being reusable, non-existent. So that's really quite cool. We then come on to the kind of the next couple of bits, which are uh, second factors that really, really get crazy, and these are hard tokens. Hard tokens? Anybody remember the RSA token? So this is a hardware token. It's an actual physical thing. Okay. And the RSA tokens actually used something very similar to TOTP. Okay. They would have a six-digit code that would change every so often. But, of course, being RSA, you had to buy the RSA server and implement directly with them, and it was a quite costly thing to roll out. But it was super secure. I can see on certain um, in certain implementations, it's always really good to have like one of these expensive systems. But it doesn't mean that it means that they don't really gain traction, right? Because people are like, well, we're not going to buy a whole server to just do a little bit of authentication. By the way, you can hear in the background. Here's my little key. Here's my little. So I'm just ringing my little Yubi key that I'm showing to uh, Rob. There you nice. Go. Yeah. Complete with the USB C dongle adapter. Thank you, Apple. Yeah. Exactly. But it's also, a lot of these systems require that the token be paired with your application. And for something like an RSA token, that's quite a cost for you to bear as the application developer and maintainer. You've got to send each user one of these tokens, right? Right. And the whole thing that made kind of Google Authenticator and that kind of style of authentication very popular is all you have to do is rely on them having a smartphone. Mm -hmm. And effectively, they pay for their own Authenticator hardware. Right, exactly. Everyone's got a everyone's got a smartphone. Yeah, well, so. more or less. And if not, you, there are alternatives. But you know, yeah. by and large, at this point, everybody who's using a computer on the internet has the means to do the second factor. Mm-hmm. Uh, fair enough. It's maybe a little bit Western worldy, but hey, YubiKeys attempted to do something very similar in that they wanted to. I mean, the name YubiKey derived from ubiquitous key. Mm-hmm. And they wanted to have a hardware device that was affordable and reusable. So the idea is that rather than having an RSA token or similar, other tokens are available, for each application, you would have one token and you could use it for as many applications as supported it. So nice and easy. And the original YubiKey used, uh, well, actually used a whole bunch of different authentication systems. Uh, The main one was it would present as a keyboard to the underlying operating system, Mm -hmm. and when you tap the button, it would type a massively long one-time password right? that could then be verified, authorized, and had time-based elements. Using the same system as the authenticator, right? Yeah, but the cool thing here was that these little USB keys, if if somebody hasn't seen one, they plug straight into a USB port, and literally they show up as just a keyboard. So you tap the button, and it literally types it. So from a developer perspective, I don't have to worry about like underlying hardware drivers or any of this stuff. I can just say, well, if you can type into a web field on my app, I can authenticate that user. Mm-hmm. And it's, you know, it's cool stuff. The kind of next set of second factors, actually, I, I almost don't want to talk about them in isolation because we mentioned last time the concept of something called WebAuthN. 
Yes. So the idea of you know using a fingerprint or a biometric element on a smartphone or indeed on a laptop, depending on how shiny and new your laptop is, and also the idea that things like YubiKeys and what have you could also be used as a more generic form of uh, second factor or mm-hmm. authentication in, in inherently kind of brings us on to the guys who came up with the WebAuthn standard. Now, I don't know. Have you worked with WebAuthn, Mark? I have not yet. Okay. This is my ne- my next to do is to actually implement that. But like one of the, the the blockers, it's not a blocker. I mean, this is because I'm in the Mac ecosystem. It only works on Chrome. Doesn't work on Safari, and I haven't tried it even on Firefox and IE. So it means that it can cut out a big portion of your user base at the moment. At the moment, like presently. Well, this is this is the big problem, I suppose. I mean, it's a, it's a perennial problem with web dev, but. At the same time, this uh, WebAuthn is still in kind of beta, I guess. It's not yeah. quite been finalized. Uh, according to caniuse.com, uh, you can use it in Firefox. You can use it in Edge 18. I don't even know if Edge is still a thing because they've rolled out the new WebKit version. You can use it in Chrome. You can use it in Opera. No sign of it coming up on Safari or anything else. Okay. I'm guessing Safari will have to implement it at some point. Yeah. It's going to be a ratified standard. So what does WebAuthn do? We talked about this a little bit in the last episode, so a very quick recap. It takes the idea of web authentication into uh, an abstract API for developers to use. And the two elements abstracts are the concept of a secret generator or an authentication generator, which could be a fingerprint reader, it could be a YubiKey, it could be a face ID. And a common attestation chain that allows you to determine that that user is who they say they are. Mm -hmm. Now, the reason that this is kind of interesting in terms of how it works across various different devices is obviously you've got a YubiKey, uh, which works in like a USB-enabled machine. You may have a YubiKey that works in your Android machine. Right. You don't have a YubiKey that works with your iOS device because it doesn't support it, or your laptop, which has USB ports locked down, for example. Yeah. So WebAuthn also allows you to use pretty much any kind of system that has this concept of a secure enclave, uh, which we'd also know as a trusted execution environment or a trusted platform module. Okay, so in other words, in, in proper English, that would be, for example, the fingerprint reader on your old IBM or... Uh, Windows um, facial recognition. Yes, so it's more about the fact that most uh, systems these days have this place inside the hardware of the system where you can store secrets Mm -hmm. with varying degrees of security. Mm -hmm. Hilariously, trusted platform module, I think, is the Intel version, and this is where we get sued, so I'm going to be nice and say, you know, this kind of area on a motherboard or on a processor, wherever it lives, tends to be quite broken because security researchers kind of bounce off them a lot. And and yeah, right. yeah. Apple have one in at the heart of iOS. It's a it's literally a chip. It's a place in memory that you can only read if you jump through all sorts of cryptographical hoops, which is quite cool. Um, and we have big corporate versions of this, which are referred to as HSMs, hardware security modules. Gotcha. The YubiKey, interestingly enough, could actually be considered a very small HSM. Okay. As in physically small. Right. YubiKey themselves actually make an HSM that's even smaller, but quite costly. Now, implementation of WebAuthn through FIDO2, or whatever variant you're going to use, can be 
really quite complicated. There are a lot of cryptographic primitives that you have to kind of set up. Uh-huh. There's a lot of signing and, and hoops to jump through. Right, to get it all like set up, ready to go for all the users that you're going to be... Playing. Yeah, because there's... I mean, there's from a developer perspective, the bits that we're interested in, there are two stages to using WebAuthn. There is the registration, and then there is the authentication. Registration mm-hmm. happens up front, and we need to... When we onboard that user, we need to get their secret off them, yep. and their attestation, rather, so that we can then verify when they come back that they are that person. Right. And authentication is that process of verifying it. The reason it's somewhat complicated from a developer perspective is unlike a YubiKey where it just, an old YubiKey, where it just typed into a form field and we just get that sent up over our HTTPS post. Yeah. For WebAuthn, we have to have JavaScript on the client that engages with the WebAuth API, and that then talks to the server and generally speaking, it does it in kind of an Ajaxy postbacky kind of way, so it's not as simple as a straight post. And, and from what it looks like, I just had a little go on uh, the Firefox to see if it works. And in Chrome, it actually pops up something within the UI of the browser itself. I'm not talking about the the document of the browser, but actually something that, like you know, how that SSL uh, key it actually comes up going like, oh, this is a secure form. Do you want to touch your fingerprint reader or? Or, or do whatever, how it integrates with the HSM, right? Yeah, so, I mean, this is similar to a lot of the HTML5 APIs or the modern web API permissions, so things like location or mm-hmm. um, in-tab alerting and that kind of thing. Yeah. And, yeah, it's, it's baked into the web browser experience. The other thing that's kind of interesting about WebAuthn is that you can actually run it in single or multi-factor mode. So if you think about using WebAuthn in a YubiKey scenario, Mm. all it requires is what's referred to as a presence test. So you have to tap the button to show that you're actually there. Okay. And it just prevents people from, you know, spoofing it or saving it or intercepting it and running it later and that kind of thing. Yeah. Not exactly sure how it knows, but anyway. Yeah. Of course, you can also use it as multi-factor. So you could have a pin that would be entered and then you would tap the button. Mm -hmm. uh, And then you've got proper multi-factor authentication. Or in the case of things like the iOS implementation and the Android implementation, they often tie back into the fact that you have to have unlocked the phone and potentially reuse the fingerprint identifier to unlock the secret that's held in the secure enclave. Right. And and sometimes you have the, your own apps. Like, for example, the Google app will, will pop up going like, you're trying to log in. And you're like, yes, yeah, so I have to use my fingerprint to open up my iPhone or my face to you, open up my iPhone to then be able to press, yes, it is me. So there's... That's, that's the presence and the, the authentication parts, right? And hopefully what we'll see is more and more people standardizing behind WebAuthn for web-based stuff. It doesn't solve the problem of authentication within an app, uh, although obviously if that app currently uses some kind of web-based authentication flow, it could be added. I suppose circling back to how you would actually implement this in your applications, it's complicated. So as with OAuth, unless you really want to get into this stuff, it's more complicated than OAuth. Okay. So use a library. There are standard libraries out there. I think YubiKey have a bunch of them as part of the FIDO2 Alliance project. There are a bunch of libraries out there, and you can drop it in, and hopefully it will handle all of the fairly Lario encryption and, and maths for you. Because you don't want to be doing that yourself. Never implement authentication, authorization, and security stuff that should be in a library yourself. No. Because there's 
there are so many pitfalls, and I said that we'd, we'd talk about this um, a little bit later on, and I'm you know, conscious of time, so this will be a, a quick summary, but you must have found this. When you start thinking through, you've written your application, and obviously we put a login form on it, so we built a front door. But that's just the beginning of ensuring that our application is secure. Are we then uh, monitoring that uh, login form for how many times people try and fail to get in? Yeah. Are we throttling authentication attempts? Yeah, and, and all the other things. So making sure, like blacklisting IPs, for example. And then you think, well, actually, are we then checking to say the user is already logged in? So you've logged in from you know your IP address, and then we get an, a valid login request, but it's from a different location. Yeah, and you go, like, how did you move to China so quickly? Yeah. Uh, faster than speed of light travel. And then we're into uh, you know the various elements of you know this area of the application is sensitive. So maybe the area where they can change their password or change their email address. Do we then implement re-authentication? And there's all of these different elements that if you start to think about what it means to write a truly secure application, we have to watch and monitor more or less everything. Mm. And and these are not easy things. I've written some of this stuff, and this is not fun stuff to write because generally it's invisible. I'm going to say it's invisible. It's a feature that that you don't see unless you're 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 trying to log log in badly. The product owner doesn't see it. They don't see any value until they're actually broken into, and by then it's your fault because you allowed people to break in, right? So it's a, it's a thankless task. In a and way. this is it. It's the trade-off because the user doesn't want it because it makes their use of the application harder because they have to type their password in or authenticate more often. The product owner doesn't want it because, with the exception of some cases, generally speaking, they don't really care because they put the onus on the user to secure their stuff. Mm-hmm. The obvious examples would be where there's money at stake. So, you know, banks go completely the other way, yeah. and they have all sorts of security based around user profiling, uh, usage patterns, authentication, and whatnot. And they kind of have to, because if they get broken into, it costs them money. I mean, I've had this, like, I've actually used my bank app before I flew off somewhere. And, of course, you know, I was, like, waiting for some money to arrive or whatever it was. And then I logged in like a few hours later from a completely different country, and they're like, nope. <laughs> and I'm like, dude, I was just on a plane. I was literally trying to travel. So I've had to find them up going, I'm actually, I am me. I am actually, you know, and you have a conversation with your bank, right? So they're, they're a lot more protected. For a lot of us, if we're working on a specific contract, it can be quite easy to look at some of the authentication and just say, you know what? Eh. There was an amazing uh, study and... Um, slightly unethical. I'll, I'll see if I can dig it out so we can put a link to the to the results in the show notes. Uh, did you see this? This was the uh, the team who asked a bunch of Java developers to implement a login system, an authentication oh, system. Oh, wow. Really? And something crazy, like 90% of them or 80% of them stored the password in plain text <sighs> until yeah. they were asked to add security. And then a lot of them went back and, you know, added some form of hashing or what have you. Right. To be fair, some of them also did it completely wrong. But it is amazing from a developer perspective. It's like, well, I could do this stuff right and it will take time and I'm, you know, I'm, I'm running to an, an hourly quote here or whatever. I've got three yeah. days to implement this. I could spend the extra half a day doing the security right or I could take that half a day and count it as profit. Uh, uh, sorry, I'm... I'm, I'm 
just shaking my head in disbelief at that. I mean, and but the thing is, you're right. I've I've come across so many systems that it's like first pass. It's like username, password in the database field, and you go, like, these are clear text. Yeah, this is terrible. But it makes it easier to debug. <laughs> I mean, that's the other nice thing, I suppose, about uh, the minute you see a system that has two FA especially if it's using Authenticator or WebAuthN or what have you. Well, firstly, if it's using WebAuthN and they're still storing the password in clear in the database, I'm gobsmacked if they've gone to all that effort. But at least you know that the application, even if you have that password and you as a user are not reusing passwords and what have you, that application is fundamentally considerably more secure. It's still a no-no, but at least you've got the idea of some protection. So what's the next part of this? This is now going into, I guess, cryptography. Like, well, we kind of touched upon it on how to do passwords properly, right? Because you have to do, start doing some hashing, looping, salting of your password. But that's all fine. But you still have essentially the password even in a mixed-up format on your server, right? You do. I mean... <sighs> Hashing is, salted hashes are pretty much secure as they come. Sure. You know, especially if you're keeping up to date and, you know, you have SHA-2 upwards, because I think Mm -hmm. MD5 definitely broken, SHA-1 might be broken, can't remember. But yeah, SHA-256 and up, um, absolutely fine, and at the moment, unbroken. Or something like Bcrypt. Thank God. Well, inevitably, the use of cryptography is a continuing race between the attacker and the defender. And unfortunately, the attackers are quite smart and the math is really hard. And Mm -hmm. so you do find problems with implementations. You find bugs in software that are ancient. Look at OpenSSL, right? Bug that's been kicking around since New Year's Eve 1999, memory serves. And that only surfaced last year. But, yeah, if you're um, using hashing uh, or using something like Bcrypt, you're fine. The big no-nos, don't use MD5, don't use older hashing or insecure hashing methods for secure hashes. Right. You want to use MD5 to calculate if a file contents have changed because it's quick, go for it. You want to use CRC to do that, go for your life. Do not use it for authentication. For... More or less anything else, you have to start to think about you know the public-private key end of mm-hmm. all of these systems. And again, don't implement your own. WebAuthN does a really great job of doing all of this. Uh, there are a couple of other elements that we can, as developers, we could require if we wanted to build, for example, a super secure system. Okay. Uh, What's the ultimate security? Ultimate security. Well, the ultimate security is um, you know you host your application on a server that's switched off, unplugged, buried <laughs> under 20 feet of tarmac. Yeah. Oh, uh, concrete. No one's getting that stuff. Really. Armed guards, and even then, it's still probably only about 90% secure. Well, yeah, I mean, it's, 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 I think it's a continuum of security, right? So is uh, how much effort are you going to go and put it to security is, is kind of like a, a spectrum rather than like a binary state. Yeah, there is no such thing as secure versus insecure. It's it's on a, a bell curve, more or less. And you want to work out for your application, for your client, for your project, how much security is appropriate. Mm-hmm. I mean, one of the very infrequently used... In fact, let's 
take it the other way. One of the most frequently used means of adding security to an application is SSL. So mm-hmm. we encrypt traffic. And this isn't actually authentication at all. Part of it is is just verifying that the traffic between the server and the client is unintercepted. So you can't monkey with it. You can't listen to it. You can't change it. It doesn't provide any kind of authentication or uh, authorization at all from either the user or the server end because anybody can generate an SSL certificate, more or less. Mm -hmm. It's really easy to do. And as such, it can't be relied upon to verify that the web server you are talking to is in fact the web server that you think it is, Mm -hmm. if that makes sense. But basically, it's making sure that your conversation is... No one can listen in on your conversation, but it's not doesn't care about the contents of the conversation, right? It's not saying that if you're talking to the right person or, you know, it's just making sure that that channel is is secure. One of the interesting things that people don't often use with SSL is the fact that it can go both ways, that you can actually have client-based SSL certificates and you can have per-client server-based SSL certificates. So as part of your super secure web application, what you could actually do would be to implement client-based certificate generation. So either they generate it and send it to you, or you generate it and securely send it to them, and they install it. At which point, you now know that, firstly, any traffic coming into your site has to have a client cert. Mm -hmm. So any traffic that doesn't have that client cert, you can just ignore Mm-hmm. And you can use that client cert to verify that the traffic itself is actually coming from client XYZ before you right. even get to the login form or anything else. But you don't see a lot of this around, do you? No, because it's a pain in the <clears throat> pain in the derriere. <laughs> derriere. Not least of which because do you I mean you do because you're a developer. I do because I'm a developer. Do you think that, you know, my mum knows how to install an SSL certificate on her laptop? Yeah. Or yeah. on her iPad? And she gets all sorts of scary warnings about certificate stores and what have you. Yeah. I'm putting your put in your like administrator passwords like what? Yeah. Also, along with everything else, those certificates then in theory should be rotated every so often. So we have to then get that certificate expired out. We have to get a new one installed. We have to warn the user when this is coming. So we just made a complete rod for our own backs. But if you wanted total absolute end to end security, you could run client and server based TLS. Mm-hmm. and separate certs per client, and you can guarantee that your app is almost completely secure until somebody breaks TLS. <laughs> Again. <laughs> Again, right. I think that implementation would be for something like AWS, right? Do you know what I mean? It would be like something like, well, or me as an AWS managing AWS, or me mm-hmm. uh, managing Azure, or something like that. Because those are important assets compared to to just like NatWest and each one of their clients because, as you say, non-technical people on the other end, you know, Bob the Builder, he's not going to know how to install The one area where I've seen this in the wild, apart from some fairly specific bits and pieces, are, yeah, corporate applications and corporate banking. We've actually had to do this at work where we've had to install a certificate in order to access the portal. And then there's a whole bunch of authentication, there's usernames, there's pins, and there's uh, second factors. So so I, so, you had to install, they gave you a specific cert per person? Yes. Or did you have to generate your own? No. In this case, they securely transmitted uh-huh. that certificate to us. Uh-huh. Okay. Makes sense. And we installed it. Right. Easier than generating your own. Much. 
<laughs> and much more secure because in theory right. they can ensure that it's generated using a proper random number generator, proper DH. Yeah. This is where my cryptography kind of just drops off a cliff <laughs> and we actually get into the implementation of it. Well, you, and that should be it, right? This is the whole point. You shouldn't know, you should know a little bit enough to know that what, what's happening is good, but if you know too much, you're going to be, start implementing it. And how's your maths, Rob? How's your... Not good enough <laughs> to write you know, an SSL or TLS-based asymmetric cryptographic system. Yeah. Not exactly. good enough to re-implement AES. Definitely not. I am not that guy. But it is useful to understand how they work and very important to understand how you can use them properly. Indeed. So there we go. That has been OAuth, Second Factors, WebAuthN, a bit more of a dive into WebAuthN. Hopefully this has been a help to people rather than a hindrance. And we'll send out SSL certificates at the end of the show for every listener so we know that you're listening to the podcast. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, can you imagine? You get an SSL certificate. You get an SSL certificate. It's cheaper than newbie keys. Yeah. There will be a ton of resources in the show notes for this one. If anybody's interested in learning more about WebAuthN, uh, YubiKey, client-side SSL, and what have you, I'm going to try, uh, we are going to try, and pull out examples and implementations. We'll link some libraries and what have you. So feel free to uh, review those at your leisure. Well, thank you very much, Rob. This has been our security episode. We might revisit this in the future. I mean, this is one of the things that every software we have to revisit because something new has popped up in the world of security. Yeah, well, I mean, WebAuthN is only a couple of years old. Is it that even that? Um, it's new. It's fairly very new. It was definitely a thing last year because I did a talk on it. But anyway, so yeah, this stuff is new. It's changing, and therefore we need to, as good conscientious developers, need to keep ourselves up to date. Indeed. And on that note, goodbye. <laughs>